0: <laughs> no, it's a pleasure to be here. We have long heard about your church, and when uh, John and Victoria first came here, we were excited about them coming, and uh, we've been praying for the church, and I've always wanted an excuse to be able to slip down here and see what was going on, so this gave me an excuse to do that, so that was pretty exciting. And we even were so excited. We gave up one of our families there in Joint Airs. Besides the Cricks, we gave up the Aguilars, and uh, they're they're oh they're right there. They're right, they're back. So they're right here, and they came down too. And uh, so that was that was hard to do to give up two of our families, but it's such a blessing to be here and to and to be a part of your ministry this morning. Uh, our message this morning is entitled. Um, Is God punishing me? That's probably what your pastor was thinking on Thursday. (laughs) when he had his endoscopy uh, little procedure uh, go on. Is God punishing me? There may be a time in your life that you've thought about that. And you've thought, depending on what has happened in your life and the circumstances that have occurred in your life, you've thought, is God really punishing me? And the reason why that's so important is because over the past 35 years, we've spent a lot of time, many, many, many hours, sitting and counseling people that have various difficulties and problems, from marital problems to difficulties with depression and fear and anger and anxiety and on and on and on and on. And after they have laid out their entire life in front of me on the table, sometimes they'll look at me in tears and they'll ask the question, and it's an important one, is is God punishing me? That's a huge question. I want you to take your Bibles, would you please? And let's go over to Hebrews chapter 12. We're interested in verses 7 through 11. I wish we had the opportunity to spend the entire morning in this chapter. We don't, so we're going to have to be selective. Follow along in verse 7 as I read. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness. There's four brief things I want you to understand from this particular text this morning. And if you have a pen and paper, I noticed your bulletin has a little blank space. I recommend that you write these down. You may say to me, I don't keep notes. And I'll say to you, this morning is a wonderful time to start. Right, because I think at some particular point you're going to use these in your own life or you're going to need these in order to help another person at some particular point. So it's important that you listen. And in order to set a little bit of the background of this, you understand that the book of Hebrews was written to professing Jewish Christians. Most of them were genuinely believers and author of Hebrews makes that plain as you march through the argument of this particular book. He believed that most of them were genuine believers. However, some of them were showing a a bit of a tendency to give up their faith and forsake their faith as a result of the persecution that they were enduring. And as that Persecution became more and more intense. They were thinking about going back, slipping back into their Judaistic practices. And because of that, they would have to, in a sense, deny the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His atoning death as being sufficient for once and for all. That's the reason why Hebrews chapter 10 talks about that. So all of this difficulty, all this persecution, you may think, on wherever you are in whatever school or job you're in, that you have a lot of persecution. But I don't think it even comes close to what these Christians were enduring. Some of them had lost their property. Some of them had lost loved ones. They had been, in a sense, thrown into prison. Uh, others had um, lost their jobs. Uh, permanently and they weren't allowed to be rehired in any way. Um, And it hadn't escalated yet to the point where there had been shedding of blood yet with the Christians, but they knew that this was around the corner. And of course, um, this was written prior to 70 AD before the destruction of the temple so that tendency for those professing Christians was to go back into that temple worship and begin to participate in sacrifices all over again as if Christ's death didn't really pay for all of our sins. And so there's the context in which the writer of Hebrews is writing. Now in order to help you understand this just a little bit, let me tell you a little story and then we'll get into the four main points that I described a little bit earlier. Back about five or six years ago, I had an opportunity, and about every couple of years, I'm given this opportunity to fly into Switzerland and Germany and to train pastors there in the area of biblical counseling. And so I just spent a week in Zurich, Switzerland, um, at, a, at actually the largest evangelical church there and pastors from all over Switzerland came in. And then we flew up to Cologne, Germany and we were there at a church in the shadows of the big United Nations building there in Cologne. So this church had a mixture of people from all over the world in it. And, um, and these sessions started at 9 o'clock in the morning and went until almost 8 o'clock at night. All day long and i had another uh, fellow a pastor with me and so he was doing part of the training so we were alternating every other uh, hour in terms of doing training and there was a good friend in fact uh, the aguilars and the tricks know exactly who this person is his name was martin manton martin it was a translator. Martin grew up in Switzerland. He spoke German fluently and he's one of the best translators I've ever worked with because he can translate fluently into German and I don't even have to stop or pause what I'm saying in English. He just continues to just translate right along and I don't even have to hesitate and that just works for me. All right. So, um, so he's just translating right along with me. and so I had the last session of one of the first days that we were at this particular conference. and there was about 200, 250 pastors, their wives, church leaders from all over Germany there in Cologne. and we were going along in this last session. it was the end of the day and, and so I finished the last session. and we closed in prayer. And Martin and I were wrapping up our Bibles and notes up in front. I kind of saw in my peripheral vision, the side aisle of the church, this elderly uh, woman of small of stature with a scarf tied around her head and a long, almost gray coat on, went almost clear to her ankles, uh, just making her way right towards us. And the first thing I noticed was how swollen her ankles were, which suggested Possibly congestive heart failure or something going on in her life, but she made her way up and she grabbed a hold of Martin. And Martin's a little bit taller than I am. He kind of looks like your pastor a little bit, a little bit taller than I am. He's kind of got a bald head, and um, she, this little gal, grabs him by the arm just firmly as can be and points a bony finger at me. And starts saying something in German, and so uh, Martin looks at me and says, uh, "This woman wants to talk with you." Well, as soon as I finished that particular message, I could hear my bed calling me. John, come to me. I was totally exhausted. It was the end of the day. So I'm ready to say to her, listen, you come back tomorrow and we'll sit down and I'll be more than willing to talk with you. But right now, I'm not responsible for anything I say after nine o'clock in the evening, okay? But before I could get that out of my mouth, Martin turns to me and says, she wants to tell you something that she has never, ever told anybody in her entire life. Now, when a 75 year old woman says that to me, she has my attention. I'm going, okay, well, let's go over here to the side and let's sit down and we'll talk. So the three of us went over and Martin translated and we sat down and I said, Tell me what's on your heart, what's on your mind. And she started to unfold this story to me. And you understand, over the past 30-plus years, I've heard a lot of really bad things in people's lives. Some of them would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. But this ranks right up there towards the top. This woman began to unfold to me her life story. She said, you know, I was born um, in the Soviet Union. My father and mother... Were descendants of German immigrants. And if you know anything about your history in terms of Russia, back after Peter III of Russia was assassinated, his wife, Catherine, later on called Catherine the Great, took his place and ruled Russia. At that particular time, like today, Russia's economy was very, very poor. And Catherine the Great, in order to improve the economy, went to Germany. And at that time, in the back in the 1700s, the Germans were the best farmers in the world. They, they knew how to produce great crops and with a limited amount of ground that they had. And they were very, very productive. And one thing that Russia was rich in was land. They had lots of land. And so Catherine the Great said to German farmers, if you're willing to come to Russia and teach our Russian farmers how to farm the way you farm, we'll give you huge plots of land and they'll be that'll be yours. Those will be your farms. You can work those. So thousands and thousands of German farmers left Germany and went to Russia. Even if you were to go there today, there are a lot of German descendants uh, splattered all over Russia and little conclaves, German descendants that are there in Germany. And um, this woman who I was talking to was a descendant of one of those immigrants. Her father, the woman began to explain to me, was a pastor. He pastored a church under the Soviet Union. It was an illegal church. It wasn't recognized by the state. And they met out in the woods somewhere. And there was about three or 400 people that were a part of that particular church And she grew up in that church, became a teenager, eventually met a young man in that church, and upon meeting that particular young man, fell head over heels in love with this guy, and she felt that he loved her too. But then she made a very, very tragic mistake, a sinful mistake, and she ended up spending the night with that guy once. And in that one encounter, she became pregnant. And that immediately brought shame upon her family, upon her church, upon all of her friends that knew her, and what crushed her the most was this guy who she believed that they loved each other intently when he found out that she was pregnant and he did not want to have anything to do with her any longer. And that only, that just crushed her and it made her mad. And her mother and her father began to deal with the the issue of the pregnancy. And, of course, as Christians, the option was not an abortion. And so they began to discuss, what are we going to do with her? She's going to get more and more pregnant. This is going to become more and more public. What has occurred here? She's not married. This guy's taken off. Um, And they discussed several different options on dealing with this issue until her uncle came along and said, I've been able to find a job for her. She can move to this particular town, work this job, support herself, have her baby, give it away for adoption, and then come back, and that way we can save face. She didn't like this idea at all. She didn't want to leave her hometown. She didn't want to leave her family. She didn't want to leave her church. But And it was very unusual during that particular time in the Soviet Union for... And to find a job. Jobs were very, very scarce. So her mother and father agreed that that's what needed to be done. And she described for me the day that they took her to the train station, how angry she was at her father, her mother, her uncle, how the hate just grew up in her heart towards them. So much so that when... They placed her on the train to go to this town. She refused to say goodbye to them. She refused to say anything to them, and that was the last time in her life she ever saw them. She went on to this particular town. It was several hours train trip away. Uh, Arrived, got off the train. It was right on the edge of Siberia, and it turned out that this particular job was being a cook in a prison camp. Of over 600 men, and she was the only woman there. And with tears running down her face, she began to describe, and by the way, she was the only cook there. She had to cook two meals a day for 600 men. Every day, and then she began to describe to me how, on a repeated basis, every day guards and sometimes inmates of that prison would rape her. She was the only woman there, and this went on for months. One day. She's fully pregnant now. She's walking into the nearby town to buy supplies for the kitchen in the middle of winter. And her baby decides to come. And she describes to me how she sat down in the snow and she delivered her own baby. And after she delivered her baby, this baby that had caused her so much anguish and so much pain... And so much hate filled her heart that she took that baby and threw it out over the ice. And the tears just rolled. And I look at Martin, and Martin's got tears in his eyes. And I have tears in my eyes. Through a whole set of circumstances, I'm shortening this story a lot. She was able to get away from that prison camp, go to East Germany at the time when the wall was still up, and get a job there. And she was there for a while, and she ran into another man. They fell in love. This time, she got married. Not long after she was married, she got pregnant. And after she got pregnant, this man left her, and she never saw him again. For the next 18, 20 years, she begins to raise her little daughter. And when her daughter becomes around 19, 20 years of age, she meets a young man, she falls in love, they get married, she gets pregnant. A couple of months after the baby was born, her son-in-law and her daughter was in a terrible car accident. They were both killed and the baby was maimed and now she's left with her grandchild to raise her grandchild for the next 20 years. In the meantime, the wall between East and West Germany comes down. If you know anything about the history there, a lot of East Germans who were very, very poor fled into West Germany. That's where all the money was. She was a part of that flood into Germany. She located in Cologne, was able to get a job there, took her granddaughter there, and her granddaughter became a teenager and began attending the church where I was speaking. And through that, her granddaughter comes to Christ, gloriously saved, and starts coming home to her grandmother and says to her, Grandma, you gotta come to church with me. Not interested few weeks later, hey grandma, you need to come to church with me. Not interested. I gave up on that a long time ago. Gave up on church, God, anything it has to do with that. Not interested in that at all. Her granddaughter was really persistent. Grandma, got to go to church with me. So to get her granddaughter off of her back, she said, I'll agree to go to church with you once. Once. And I don't want you to ask me that anymore. She went to church. She described how at that particular time, in that one time, God melted that hard heart. She gave her life to Christ. That was only a few months before I arrived, and here she was in this big church, big for German size, in this big church, sitting with all these pastors and their wives and leaders from all over Germany, sitting in the back, listening to all we have to say on how the Bible deals with the serious problems of life. And she looks at me, with tears in her eyes, and she says, is God punishing me? It's a great question, isn't it? Now, you understand my mind is a counselor. I've been sitting here for well over an hour and a half listening to her whole life story. And at that particular point, I've identified about 25, 30 things I need to address in this lady's life. All right? And we're going to be here until 5 o'clock in the morning. And I saw she had a little Bible with her. Somebody had given to her there at the church. And I said, I want you to take that Bible and I want you to turn over to the book of Romans. In fact, put a little marker here in Hebrews 12. Let's go over to Romans chapter 8 just for a moment. She couldn't find Romans. And so Martin was able to help her find Romans. Chapter 8. And I asked her, I'm going to ask you to read this verse out loud. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And she read, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then she looked at me, and I said, do you know who wrote that? She said, no. I said, a man by the name of Paul. I said, do you know anything about Paul? She says, no. I said, aside from being an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, did you know that the that the apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, participated in, in the murder of Christians. Did you know that? This is actually a murderer writing these words. She looked at me, and she looked down at the text. And then she looked at me again, and then she looked down at the text. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the biggest tears filled her eyes. And I just sat there and explained what that verse meant. And I told her... I want you to go home tonight and memorize that verse, which was a tall order for a 75-year-old woman. I want you to go home and memorize that verse and then come back tomorrow, quote it to me, and tell me what that verse means. So we had prayer. It had been raining all that day. And she had walked several blocks in the rain. We made sure she had a ride home so she didn't get soaked going home next day, I saw Martin. I said, Martin, have you seen Our Lady? And he said, no. And just then, she comes bursting through the door of the church and making a beeline right to Martin and myself, going about as fast as a 75-year-old woman can move, and had the biggest, toothless grin I've ever seen. All right? And I said, Martin, ask her about the verse. And she had already started quoting it before I got that out of my mouth. I said, how did she do? Got it perfect. I said, now ask her, what does this mean? And she looked at me again and tears filled her eyes and she said, all the guilt, all that pain, all the anger that I had for all of those years, almost 50 years. She said, it's gone. It's all gone. I said, that's right. Two years later, I was back the same place. I saw her pastor, and I said to her pastor, hey, how's so-and-so doing? How, how is she doing? And he said, oh, my goodness. He said, do you know that when we have a large church dinner, and this is a church around four or 500 people there, uh, when we have a large church dinner, she won't let any of the women in the church in the kitchen. She cooks the whole thing. Uh, I said, well, you know where she learned that. He said, yeah, in those prison camps. But she, she just works on her own, and she lays out this unbelievable dinner. And she does it all by her 75 years of age. The whole church. She's a spark plug in our women's ministry. Really? This pastor is just as proud as could be on how God had turned that woman around. Let's go back to Hebrews 12. Is God punishing me? Let's see if we can answer that question. Four things we want to remember. Verse 7, let's begin there. It is for discipline that you endure, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? Principle number one that you've got to nail down in your thinking. I must view hardship as God's discipline. I must view hardship as God's discipline. Now, a good way to translate verse 7 is something like this. Um, We are to endure hardship As discipline. That's one of the ways you could translate this verse. We are to endure hardship as discipline. God is treating us as His sons. That means whatever hardship I encounter in my life, yes, I don't care how small you may think it is, how large and huge you may think it is, no matter what it is, I must learn to view hardship as God's discipline because that's the way in which God works in our life. This is the God that we serve. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 just for a moment to give you one illustration out of many that we could give throughout Scripture. God is talking to the people of Israel, reminding them of their difficulties in the 40 years there in the wilderness. And in verse 2, Deuteronomy 8, he says, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart. Now, stop there for a moment. God is not testing us so that he can know what's in our hearts. He already knows what's in our hearts, right? He already knows that. Otherwise, he wouldn't be omniscient. God is not testing us so that he can know what's in our hearts. He's testing us so that we will know what's in our hearts. We're ignorant of that. We think we know our hearts. We don't. Sometimes in counseling, I'll say to people, if I have a sponge and I hold it out over my Bible and I squeeze that sponge really, really hard and my Bible gets soaking wet, why is my Bible soaking wet? People say, think we're stupid, don't you? Because you squeeze the sponge. I'll say, no, no, that's not the reason why my Bible's is soaking wet. Look at me for a moment. The reason why my bible is soaking wet is because there's water in the sponge in other words the reason why you do some of the mean hateful things that you do and say to other people or think in your heart is not because it's something that just all of a sudden rises up one day in the midst of a conflict that's not what happens It's because it was pre-existing in your heart and you didn't know it. And that particular conflict and that particular difficulty squeezed your heart and brought it to the surface. And all of a sudden, you're saying things that you really regret saying. It was there. Whatever that difficulty was. God humbles us, you see, because that's that's part of the problem. There is, behind this verse, is the assumption that we already have a better view of our own lives and our own hearts than what should be. We already do. We already presume too much good about ourselves. Good intentions about ourselves. That's why we have to be humbled through the circumstances of our life. So verse 2 says testing you to know what was in your heart whether you will keep his commandments or not he humbled you and he let you be hungry verse 3 says and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God your clothing did not wear out on you nor did your foot swell these 40 years thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining You just as a man disciplines his son, therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. God tests your heart. I don't care how small you think that hardship is, or how great you think that hardship is, God tests your heart. Take your Bible again. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 17. And we're interested in verse 3, Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 3. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. That's what he does. Not so that he can know what's in the heart. He already knows what's in your heart. So that you will know what's in the heart. He takes you through those difficulties so that you will know your heart. My dear Russian-German lady friend didn't want to have anything to do with God. There was so much anger, hatred she had held on to for 50 plus years in her heart over all these circumstances that occurred. Go to Psalm 119 and verse 67. Just briefly, Psalm 9, 119 and verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, the psalmist says, but now I keep your word. You see, affliction has this purifying effect in a person's life. Affliction has that purifying effect. Verse 68 says, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. In other words, even though God sends those afflictions in our life, he's still good. God is not good just when he sends good times into our lives. God is good when he sends hard times into our life. That's when he's really good. Because he's really concerned about our welfare. That's what a parent does. When a parent brings affliction into a child's life, that parent really loves that child. Look at verse 71. Psalmist says, it was good for me that I was afflicted. By the way, in the Hebrew, you could translate this as a present tense. That I am afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Verse 73, your hands made me. That's Hebrew past tense here. And fashioned me. Now he changes the tense to an imperfect. That means... God made me, now he continues to fashion me. He continues to work on me. He made me, but he continues to work on me. By bringing affliction into my life, yes. By bringing hardship into my life, yes. Absolutely, that's what God does. Verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous. And this is the hard part. And in faithfulness you have afflicted me. We have a tendency to think that God is being unfaithful when he afflicts us, right? Lord, what are you doing? Why had my life all planned out. It was going to go down this way. And you've taken it down this way. I know better. Faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished. In my affliction. I would have perished. God's law have to be has to be my delight. Let's go back to Hebrews twelve. So the first thing we've learned I must view hardship as discipline. There's a second thing. Let's look at verses eight and nine. Verse 8 says, but if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. It's pretty obvious. If you don't have any hardship in your life, then God doesn't care for you. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of our spirits and live? So the first thing is, I must view hardship as God's discipline. There's a second thing out of the four. When God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. When God brings hardship into my life, he is acting as a loving father. That is so critical. A genuine father who loves his children will discipline his children. Because he knows that's what they need. That's one of the tragedies of our modern contemporary system. We teach people that children are innately good inside. That's not true. There's never been a good child ever born in the human race except for Jesus Christ. Everybody else has been born sinners. They are little vipers in Christian diapers. (laughs) And you know that. You don't have to teach them to do wrong right they already know it you have to teach them to do right their natural bent and their natural propensity is towards wrong how can they violate something you tell them not to do now look at you before they stick their finger in that socket alright you know that That's innate within their heart. Foolishness, Proverbs 22, is is bound up in the heart of a child. They are natural fools. So, are we? We are God's children. But God knows we're natural fools. Foolishness is bound up with sinfulness in our own heart. But when God brings hardship into my life, He's acting as a loving father he actually loves me it's almost like a a coach that disciplines his team his soccer team his football team whatever the case may be why does he take them through those drills and take them to the end of what they think they can do and push them beyond that because he hates them oh no. some players who think the coach hates them He does it to make them a better team. That's why He does it. He takes them through the hardship so that they'll perform better on the day of the game. God does the same thing with us. It's the same thing. You say, okay, I understand that. I I must view hardship as God's discipline. When God brings hardship into my life, He's acting as a, a loving Father, but you still haven't really answered the question, is God punishing me? Well, that brings us Verse 10, for they discipline us for a short time, speaking of earthly fathers, as seem best to them. Sometimes earthly fathers don't discipline us for the right reasons. That's only because they're not like God. But he, speaking of God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Now listen to this. The question is, is God punishing me? This brings us to principle number three this discipline that he's taking us through is not punitive. It's corrective. To bring about greater holiness in my life. Understand? This discipline is not punitive. It's corrective. To bring about greater holiness in my life. You know why it's not punitive? Because of Hebrews 10. Because Jesus Christ paid for all of your sins, past, present, future. He took all the punitive punishment on His shoulders. There is no punitiveness to God's discipline. It is always a corrective discipline with His children. That's always true. You Go back to Hebrews chapter 10 and take a look at what verse 10 says. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all all. Verse 14 says, for by one's offering he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. When a Christian lives in the shadow of the foot of the cross and looks up every day and says, I should be hanging there, then that particular Christian understands that Every day I live on the basis of the fact that Jesus Christ paid for my sins, past, present, and future, but that doesn't mean that God is done with me. He still brings hardship into my life in order to purify me here in this daily walk in Christ in what we call progressive sanctification in order for us to attain to what we are already declared to be in Christ That is perfected sanctification. You can see that in verse 14 of Hebrews 10. Those two things are right there. He says, by one offering he is perfected for all time. You see, that is... That is what we are declared to be as absolutely holy in Christ. Those who are, and the Greek here is being sanctified. In other words, while we're here on earth, we aren't yet perfect to what we're declared to be in heaven. All the legal status of the Christian is... All of our righteousness is found in Christ. All of that is understood. But as I live out my life in terms of progressive sanctification, I'm remembering what God has already done for me and that enables me to walk more holy each day. And so you go back to chapter 12 and verse 10, it becomes very, very clear, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Do you understand that if God was really being punitive in regards to our sin, if that were really, really true, we'd be in hell. If he was really being punitive, because that's what we deserve. We deserve hell. Every couple of years, been asked to go up and speak up at Berkeley once in a while with a bunch of college Berkeley students. And that's one of the things that always comes up in the Q&A sessions is, well, you know, how can you believe that there is a God when there's so much terrible things that go on in the world today, earthquakes and tsunamis and stuff like that? How, how can you even believe that there's a God? And I say to them, how, do you, how can you believe that there's not a God when these things happen? Because behind your assumption or behind your statement is an assumption. And that assumption is that People deserve to live. You know that God could destroy the entire planet? This shakes them in their boots. Wipe out all mankind and for not one nanosecond when he ceased to be holy and righteous. Because the entire human race is depraved and lost. Lost? God has a right to do that. If we... If we were really being punished for sin, a punishment that was laid upon us, then that would suggest that somehow Christ's death on the cross was insufficient. It didn't pay the whole bill. There's something lacking, and we've got to add our own righteousness to what Jesus already did. That's not Christianity, that's Roman Catholicism. We have, to, we have to add our own righteous acts. We have to say so many Hail Marys. We have to do this and this and this. We have to do this and that and that. No, no, no. That's not biblical Christianity at all. It never was biblical Christianity. Jesus Christ paid for all of our sins. Past, present, and future. Nothing was left unpaid for. Wow. This discipline is not punitive, it's corrective in order to bring about greater holiness in my life. I'm not paying for anything. God's doing this to purify my heart. So number one, I must view hardship as God's discipline. Number two, God brings uh, brings hardship into my life. And he does, he's acting as a loving father. Three, this discipline is not punitive, it's corrective in order to bring greater holiness in my life. Number four, let's look at verse 11. All discipline. For the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Principle number four. Listen carefully. I'll know when this hardship has done its job in my life, and my heart because my heart will be at peace. I'll know. And this hardship has done its job because my heart will be at peace. That's so key. Instead of being anxious, torn up, full of turmoil on the inside, instead of all of that going on, heart's at peace even though the hardship is still present in my life i'm okay i'm all right then it's done its job because there is the peaceful fruit of righteousness as a result of that hardship that's so key jonathan edwards probably america's greatest theologian While he was president of the College of New Jersey, which later on became Princeton University. Died a premature, from a human perspective, premature death. March 22, 1758, right during the time or just before Catherine the Great took the throne in Russia. He died of a smallpox inoculation. And he had a wonderful, loving wife. They had a really close relationship in their ministry. And upon his death, his grieving widow, Sarah Pierpoint Edwards, wrote to her daughter these words. Listen to what she wrote. What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands over our mouths the Lord has done it, but my God lives, and he has my heart, and we are all given to God. Can you do that? God brings the greatest grief in your heart and into your life. and you turn around and kiss the rod that just whacked you across the back? Charles Spurgeon said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. That's sanctification. Instead of fighting what's going on in your life, instead of being angry with God, instead of shaking your emotional fist in God's face and saying, God, what are you doing in my life? Instead of doing that, I'm okay. Because I understand... What I'm going through is exactly what I need. That's what I need. I'll know. And this hardship has done its job because my heart will be at peace. Bow for prayer. Your father.